Of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes. And armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. James Madison All those who seek to destroy the liberties of a democratic nation ought to know that war is the surest and shortest means to accomplish it. Alexis de Tocqueville War is the health of the state. Randolph Bourne Throughout the history of the United States, war has been the primary impetus behind the growth and development of the central state. It has been the lever by which presidents and other national officials have bolstered the power of the state in the face of tenacious popular resistance. Bruce Porter Every year on Veterans Day, orators declare that our leaders have gone to war to preserve our freedoms and have done so with glorious success, but the truth is just the opposite. In ways big and small, direct and indirect, crude and subtle, war, the quintessential government activity, has been the mother's milk for the nourishment of a growing tyranny in this country, and it remains so today. Robert Hicks This is CJ, your Renaissance man for the new Dark Age and Guerrilla Scholar Warrior, back with yet another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast, and this is going to be the third installment in the Not-So-Civil War series. This is episode 133 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and I've chosen to entitle this episode, Crisis and Leviathans, the Not-So-Civil War Part 3. And of course, that episode title, if you don't know, is a tip of the hat to the excellent book by... Robert Higgs called Crisis and Leviathan, in which he looks at the ways in which crises, mainly war, but occasionally other things, have caused the massive growth of the American federal government. And that book is mostly looking at the 20th century, but we'll see a similar thing is taking place during the American Civil War. And it's not just taking place up north in the Union. It's taking place in the South as well. Both governments grew themselves in size and power enormously during the roughly four years of war. And while obviously the Confederacy lost the war and therefore as a government ceased to exist, and it's true that the Union over the next decade or so actually did scale back a lot of things pretty substantially, a whole lot of important precedents were set, and certain things at least never really went away. They may have gone into sort of semi-hibernation for a while, but they were just kind of waiting for the next big crisis to happen, which it ultimately would in the form of World War I about 50 years later. So this episode is going to be about the war mobilizations, North and South, and it's going to be looking at primarily the financial and economic mobilizations, and then also the mobilization of manpower, which you could consider economic in its way as well. 
But before I launch into that, I do have some Patreon shoutouts to give out. Big thanks to Darren, to Chris, to Matt, and to Kyle, all excellent individuals who have signed up to support the show on Patreon since the last episode that I made. So thank you all very much, and just a reminder to those of you listening, if you enjoy this show, want to help it and me out, and want to also get a little bit of bonus stuff as well, in the form of some bonus episodes, and in the form of access to the private Facebook group for Patreon supporters of this show, go to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show at a dollar or more per episode. And I also have an Amazon thank you. Someone got me something very helpful off my Amazon wish list. So big thanks to Justin for getting me this great little folding table that will be a nice addition to my home office studio setup. And as always, links to the Patreon page for this show and links to my DHP Amazon wish list will be in the show notes. So at the start of this conflict that we've been covering in the past two episodes, the Confederacy obviously was building a government from scratch, and even the United States government, the Union, was starting from what, especially by modern standards, would be considered a very, very minimalist central state. Just to give you kind of a feel of what things were like on the eve of this war, the U.S. Army had only about 16,000 men in 1860. And total federal government employees in Washington, D.C. were only a bit over 2,000 people. And of those, fewer than a 1,000 of them worked in the offices of the War Department and Navy Department combined. The entire federal budget for fiscal year 1860 was under $70 million. Even adjusting for inflation and how much more value the dollar had back then, that's still a very minimalist central state. And yet, as historian Bruce Porter puts it in the chapter he has on the United States in his excellent book, War and the Rise of the State, quote, Four years after the attack on Fort Sumter, a fiscal military revolution had transpired. The federal budget had soared to over $1.2 billion, and the Union fielded an army of over one million men, the largest, best equipped, best fed, and most powerful war machine ever assembled in the history of the world to that date. In proportion to the base from which it began, it was the largest mobilization in American history. As for the federal bureaucracy, despite shedding thousands of employees in the South, it had mushroomed into a centralized apparatus of over 53,000 persons. Behind both army and bureaucracy stood a radically transformed presidency wielding authoritarian power over almost every aspect of Union life. The Confederacy, too, had undergone a fiscal military process of state formation that had gone much further in creating a strong central administration than is generally realized." End quote. 
So I'm going to give an overview of mobilization in the North and then mobilization in the South, and we'll see how in so many ways they were very similar, though there were important differences. So in terms of mobilizing manpower, actually filling its military ranks, both the North and the South early in the war got a flood of volunteers, but then as things started to drag on and the bloodbath started to really get going, understandably, fewer and fewer people were quite as eager to volunteer as as when they thought it would be over in a couple of battles in a couple of months. And so both sides would ultimately have to rely on conscription. And in the Union, full-blown conscription by the federal government was instituted in March of 1863, when Congress passed something called the Enrollment Act, which authorized the U.S. federal government to carry out national military conscription for the first time in its history, though, as we'll see a little bit later, for its part, the Confederacy had actually started drafting men into its army even a bit earlier. Now, prior to the Enrollment Act of 1863, the federal government had still kind of had a draft at times, and what it had done was basically outsource the draft to individual states by requiring them to furnish quotas of state militia for national service. This had happened in some previous wars and had also been the case in the first year plus of the Civil War. But with the Enrollment Act of 1863, male citizens between 20 and 45 years of age were eligible to be drafted for a term of three years. So this is when the Union, when the federal government starts doing its own drafting instead of outsourcing it to the states. Unlike in the Confederate draft, as we'll see in a little bit, in the Union draft, there weren't any occupational exemptions where you could get out of it if you had certain jobs. Although, like the Confederate draft, one could avoid being drafted by hiring a substitute. Basically, by hiring someone who, because of their age, or perhaps because of being a resident foreign alien, was exempt from the regular draft, but you'd make an arrangement with such a person, hire them to serve in your place in the Union Army. Now, naturally, this didn't come cheap, and it amounted to an exemption for the wealthy, because sort of poor and even kind of middle-class people generally couldn't afford to hire a substitute. It was very pricey. And then there was all sorts of fraud and problems as well, where people would do things like hire themselves as a substitute, join the army, and then as soon as they could desert and maybe under another name or whatever, hire themselves to someone else as a substitute and just keep doing that multiple times. And that happened in both the North and the South. And of course, in both the North and South, there was a lot of class antagonism because average people quite understandably resented the fact that the wealthy could get out of the draft. So naturally, the threat of conscription caused those who could afford it to hire a substitute, and those who could not afford to hire a substitute often volunteered before being drafted. And the reason they did this was because if you volunteered, you got more say-so over what unit you would be placed in, and in those units you might even be able to elect your own officers. Whereas if you waited to be drafted, you'd be just sort of stuck in some unit, and so as a result of that fewer people ended up actually being drafted for the Union Army than you might expect. In fact, less than 10% of those who served in the Union Army, and some sources say less than 8%, over the course of the war were actually really conscripts. A lot of them were people who volunteered out of fear that they would be drafted and things would be a little bit worse if they were. 
But despite the fact that most of the soldiers in the Union Army technically weren't draftees, despite that fact, the draft really stirred major anger in the North, as the Confederacies drafted in the South, to be fair. But in the more urbanized North, there was more possibility for united mass resistance and that sort of thing. And there were several major riots in larger cities up North, including most famously the massive riots in New York City in the summer of 1863, which I think still to this day, in terms of body count, are the bloodiest riots in American history. In those New York City riots, people were riding simultaneously over the draft and over the emancipation policy that by then was in place of the Lincoln administration, because many people, especially a lot of poor immigrants, not only did they not want to be drafted, but they especially didn't want to be drafted to go risk their lives for the freedom of blacks in the South. Now, these rioters in New York City, they destroyed a draft office, which makes sense, but then they began, as rioters often do, just venting their frustrations on convenient scapegoats, and in this case, they're venting their frustrations on New York's free black population, some of whom they did lynch. These New York draft riots, by the way, were eventually put down by thousands of Union soldiers who were shipped up in a hurry fresh from the Battle of Gettysburg, but over a hundred people would be killed in that riot. As with future American wars in which conscription happened, a small number of radicals pointed out the contradiction of drafting men to supposedly fight for the cause of freedom. A radical abolitionist named Ezra Haywood wrote, quote, The right to draft men is as purely imaginary as the right to enslave them. End quote. But like other future American wars in which conscription took place, the government wasn't particularly persuaded by such arguments. Now, in terms of the Union's economic mobilization, Jeffrey Hummel, in his book Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men, terms the Union's economic mobilization strategy as neo-mercantilism, as it relied primarily on contracts with nominally private firms that were in fact usually very profitable contracts to the private contractor. As would be the case later in World War I and World War II, the nature of these contracts and of war production in general tended to concentrate financial power ever more into larger corporations. And as Hummel points out, it's not a coincidence that J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie all began building their respective corporate empires during this war. In other words, these are corporate empires and, and others like them who are generally associated with the Gilded Age after the Civil War in kind of the 1880s and 90s. But you really find these empires, you know, having the foundations laid during the Civil War. Now, in terms of financing the war, the North underwent a fiscal revolution. Jeffrey Hummel writes of the situation in the United States prior to the Civil War, quote, Most Americans paid no taxes whatsoever to federal officials directly, and their only regular contact with any representatives of central authority was probably through the United States Post Office, if they had any contact at all, end quote. Lincoln's Treasury Secretary, who was Salmon Chase, despite his radicalism on the issue of opposition to slavery, he was much more radical against slavery than Lincoln was on that issue. Despite the radicalism on that, he was really 
by all accounts a fiscal and monetary conservative, or perhaps one might say a classical liberal by instinct and ideology. So by that I mean he favored small government, minimal taxes, preferably balanced budgets, and sound money. And yet, to finance Lincoln's war, he would have to depart from much of his beliefs and preferences. And so it's yet another case of war and power having a way of making people throw their principles under the bus. And as we'll see with Confederate mobilization, a similar sort of thing happened there, where they had to toss a lot of their preferences and beliefs under the bus in the name of fighting the war for their part. The U.S. federal government had only two sources of revenue at the outbreak of the war, namely the tariff and the selling of quote-unquote public lands, primarily in the West. In 1858, the federal government's expenditures were $74.2 million, and even adjusted into current dollars, that's still something like a smidge under $2 billion, which, of course, would be a rounding error to the modern federal leviathan. Andrew Jackson had basically paid off the national debt, but some debt had run back up since his era, mostly due to the war with Mexico in the 1840s. But in 1858, that debt stood at $65 million. So it was not a debilitating, crazy, out-of-control fiscal situation at the start of the war, but as Jeffrey Hummel points out, quote, the cost of waging the Civil War would ultimately average $1.75 million per day. So in several months, it was as much as the entire federal government budget prior to the war. Most good economists whom I've read will say that taxes are the least economically destructive way to pay for a war, but the reason why wars, especially in the modern era, are generally mostly paid for by other means is that taxes, while they're the least economically debilitating way to pay for a war, are the most politically unpopular because it's obvious people feel the pain right away and it's clear where it's coming from. Borrowing is not as good, but it can be either a little worse than taxes to the economy or a lot worse and in terms of its overall effects on the economy, and it just depends on the exact details of the borrowing, you know, how much at what terms from who and so forth. And then there's the most economically destructive way to pay for a war or anything expensive for that matter by the government, and that's simply creating new money to cover the war's costs. And according to many economists, this is the most economically damaging and dangerous method of funding a war. It creates all sorts of distortions and problems in the economy, both at the time and often for years to come, even after the war is over. But modern governments love to resort to money creation to pay a lot of the costs of things like wars. And the reason is because politically – it's the least costly. It might damage the nation's economy more, but it's better for the preferences of the politicians. It's not felt as directly and immediately by the voters as jacking up their taxes. And when the negative effects of the money creation show up in the forms of higher prices and sometimes shortages of certain goods and so on, the politicians can always blame everyone but themselves. They can blame speculators, hoarders, and so on, which basically is blaming the symptoms of the problem they created rather than the real cause of it, which, of course, 
is the increase in the money supply to begin with. Like most modern states in all but the cheapest and briefest of wars, the Union and Confederacy both relied on a combination of all three of those things I mentioned, taxes, borrowing, and money creation, in order to finance their respective war efforts, though of course the exact balance between those three methods of war was very different between the Union and the Confederacy. And ultimately, despite its problems, the Union had a better quote-unquote balance of paying for the war than did the Confederacy. Now, in terms of new taxes that the Union or the U.S. government would institute during the war, it started with the Revenue Act of 1861, which authorized an income tax to be, quote, levied, collected, and paid upon the annual income of every person residing in the United States, whether such income is derived from any kind of property or from any profession, trade, employment, or vocation carried on in the United States or elsewhere, or from any other source, whatever, end quote. The tax rates, at least initially, and really um, on incomes throughout the war, to our eyes seem quaint and minuscule, but this was the very first income tax in American history. So the initial rate was a 3% flat tax, and it was only on incomes above $800 annually, which was a pretty high amount back then. So it meant that the majority of Americans wouldn't even have to pay it at all, and those above $800 only had to pay a 3% flat tax. Now, the Revenue Act of 1861 didn't provide for a real clear organization for enforcing and collecting this income tax, and that was something that would be quote-unquote fixed in the following year with another Revenue Act. The Revenue Act of 1861, however, did increase the protectionist tariffs on imports that had already been jacked up by the so-called moral tariff, and the act also instituted a property tax to be levied on each state based on population to be collected by the states. So it all got taken to a next level with the Revenue Act of 1862. This act established the office of the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, basically creating the federal agency that was at that time called the Bureau of Internal Revenue, but which, of course, today we call the IRS, the head of which, by the way, is still known by the title of either Commissioner of Internal Revenue or IRS Commissioner. The Bureau of Internal Revenue's job would be to collect the income taxes and the many excise taxes that were being levied by the U.S. government. Historian Richard Bensel, in his book Yankee Leviathan, The Origins of the Central State Authority in America, 1859-1877, says of the early IRS, quote, Reaching into almost every hamlet and town through a network of 185 collection districts, it rapidly became the most coercive civilian agency of the national government. Aside from the military itself, no other bureaucratic expansion in the 19th century brought so many citizens into direct contact with central state authority, end quote. After the war, many of these new wartime taxes, including the income tax and much of the excise taxes, would actually be phased out, but the Bureau of Internal Revenue never went away, and it just kind of sat there waiting for new taxes to collect. Now, of the taxes that were levied in this Revenue Act of 1862, historian James McPherson writes, quote, the Internal Revenue Act of 1862 taxed almost everything but the air Northerners breathed, end quote. So here's what it did in terms of 
creating taxes and modifying old taxes. First off, there was a new income tax that was a progressive or graduated income tax with rates that are still low by modern standards. But again, this was an unprecedented thing in American history. So the rates of the Act of 1862 were 3% on incomes of $600, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 13,000-ish in today's dollars. And so you paid 3% if you made between $600 and $10,000 annually. And $10,000 back then in today's dollars is about $220,000. And then if you made more than $10,000, you paid 5%. It also, this act authorized income tax withholding for government employees and also for, I believe, corporate dividends. The act of 1862 also created a massive array of new excise taxes, many of them in the form of what we would think of as sin and luxury taxes. So an excise tax is a tax on the making of a product that then is passed along to the consumer by being built into the price of the item when it's sold to the consumer. You know, the notion that uh, producers and sellers of goods pay taxes is ridiculous. It's always consumers because it'll just get built into the price of the item. So some examples of the things which were now subject to a federal excise tax included liquor and tobacco, which maybe not surprisingly provided more excise revenue than anything else on this list, and also a ton of other things such as playing cards, gunpowder, feathers, telegrams, Iron, leather, pianos, yachts, carriages, billiard tables, jewelry. And under this act, the government also taxed things such as newspaper advertisements, inheritances. They instituted stamp taxes for legal documents and licenses for professionals. And if this is starting to sound somewhat like some of the British taxes before the American Revolution, like, oh, I don't know, the Stamp Act of 18... Excuse me, 1765? If it's starting to sound like that, but way worse and way more comprehensive, I think you're starting to get the picture. Corporations would also be taxed and were required to report the details of their earnings to the government for taxation purposes. And then, later on in the war, there was one more Revenue Act in the Union government that was passed. It was the Revenue Act of 1864, and this increased the income tax rates that had been set by the Act of 1862. Under the 1864 Act, persons who earned under $600 would still be exempt, and then incomes from $600 to $5,000 annually had to pay 5%, those from $5,000 to $10,000 had to pay 7.5%, and those above $10,000 had to pay 10%. The Act of 1864 also placed stamp taxes on photographs and on matches. By the end of the war, internal taxes, which had mostly been a negligible source of federal revenue in the decades between Jackson's presidency and the outbreak of the Civil War, by the end of the war, these internal taxes would account for more than 60% of federal revenues. And like I said, while many of these new federal taxes would be reduced and some of them even abolished after the war, all these precedents and even a lot of the enforcement apparatus remained. And of course, the income tax eventually would come back on a larger scale and made permanent in 1913. Jeffrey Hummel writes, quote, 
At the war's close, the United States could boast higher taxation per capita than any other nation, but all the new and old taxes combined were just sufficient to cover about one-fifth of the Civil War's monetary cost, end quote, and he's talking about for the Union. So even with all these new taxes, modern war, so expensive that it still can only cover a relatively small part of it. So, because of that, Sam and Chase had to resort to the other two tools in the modern state's toolbox to fight extremely expensive wars, namely borrowing and money creation. So, in the case of borrowing, by far, the lion's share of the Union's war effort was paid for by debt. Some historians say as much as 80% of the Union's war effort was paid for in the form of borrowing. The U.S. federal government would borrow over $2.6 billion during the course of the war, which is almost 40 times what the entire federal budget was back in 1860. To help facilitate all of this borrowing, Congress passed and Lincoln happily signed the National Banking Acts of 1863 and 64, which I may cover in an episode about the lesser-known domestic aspects of the Lincoln administration. For this episode, suffice to say that it got the federal government very much in bed with large northeastern banks, especially Wall Street banks, by giving those banks special perks and powers if they would become a nationally chartered bank. But in order to qualify for that status, the banks had to submit to various federal regulations and requirements, which included the bank having to purchase large amounts of government bonds. The system, under the National Banking Act's was kind of like a quasi-national bank, but with several large, privately owned but federally privileged banks sort of collectively performing a lot of the same functions that are usually associated with one national bank. Of course, by the early 20th century, many top American banksters are going to decide it still wasn't centralized enough of a banking system, and they'll eventually get the Federal Reserve set up in 1913, perhaps not coincidentally the same year the income tax will come back in a permanent form. In addition to selling bonds to banks, the government sold over a billion dollars of war bonds, many of them in small denominations, to the general public. And the government hired bankster Jay Cook to sell these bonds, which he did, selling about half a billion dollars worth of government bonds to the northern public. So not only were the big banks and kind of classic Alexander Hamilton slash Robert Morris fashion, now heavily invested in government debt and therefore supportive of big government in general and more taxes in particular. But so now were even many average people who had bought modest-sized government bonds. They're now literally invested in funding the national debt in the future. But even with all the taxes and even with massive amounts of borrowing, the Union still couldn't quite cover all of its costs, and so they resorted to some extent to just simply creating new money. And this began in February of 1862, when Congress passed the Legal Tender Act, which authorized the Treasury Department to issue $150 million in paper money notes, not backed by specie, meaning gold or silver. This would be done several more times during the war, so that by the end of the war, the Union government had created, depending on exactly which source you look at, somewhere between 430 and $450 million face value of new paper money. 
These were the so-called greenbacks, the original greenbacks, and they set the precedent of having the federal government issue paper notes not really backed by anything in terms of real commodities or by the credit of a private bank. This was something that had not been seen since the ill-fated continental dollars of the American Revolution. Jeffrey Hummel differentiates the greenbacks from what had come before, including national banknotes, as follows, quote, The greenbacks were unbacked directly issued by the government, and made legal tender through fiat for all payments, public and private, except tariff duties and interest on the Treasury's debt. These differences gave Sam and Chase extreme misgivings about the Greenback's constitutionality, but he was desperate." Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts also voiced misgivings about the greenbacks in the U.S. Senate, but then he said that he'd defer to the Treasury Secretary's judgment because of the emergency situation. Crisis in Leviathan. Now, not only did the government crank out these greenbacks, but remember, private banknotes continued to be issued as well during the war. In fact, they also increased in issue thanks to the new National Banking Acts. And so, according to Jeffrey Hummel, the Union money stock overall doubled by 1863, just midway through the war. Because the greenbacks were legal tender, but it wasn't required that they be accepted at the equivalent face value in Specie. In other words, you were required to accept them, but you weren't required to accept them on par with hard money, gold and silver. That meant that hard money traded at a premium. And by the summer of 1864, the purchasing power of a greenback dollar was only about the same as the purchasing power of 35 cents worth of gold dollars. And because of the government-issued paper greenbacks, counterfeiters got in on the game and the U.S. government ended up creating the Secret Service to try to police that. The war resulted in the U.S. federal government becoming a major producer. Even though the federal government purchased a lot of its stuff from private contractors, it also did end up having its own government factories, including clothing factories, pharmaceutical factories, meat packing factories, and of course, weapons factories, which the federal government had had prior to the war, but which of course were greatly expanded as a result of the war. The Springfield National Army in Massachusetts, for example, which had been founded by George Washington, expanded to over 3,000 employees and became capable of making over 300,000 rifles per year at the height of war mobilization. And the federal government opened another national arsenal at Rock Island, Illinois. The federal government also, like I said, was a major purchaser in the economy, which was a new thing in the American experience. Prior to the Civil War, the federal government simply hadn't been a significant purchasing force in America's economy. However, over the course of the war, it would become the largest purchaser in the country, and this, of course, has lots of effects on the shape of the economy. Hundreds of new factories sprang up in northern cities to feed the Union war machine, and as Bruce Porter points out, quote, The massive federal procurement effort influenced prices, investment patterns, and financial practices throughout the economy, and also stimulated congressional efforts to impose stricter regulations, end quote. The Union government also grabbed some power to seize private property, although they exercised this actually relatively sparingly, especially compared to the Confederacy. The biggest example of this was the authorization Congress gave Lincoln in 1862 to seize any railroads he deemed necessary to take over for the war effort. 
Now, this authorization wasn't used hardly at all in the North, or very little, but it was used in the South to enable the Union to take over and run any Southern railroads that fell within Union-controlled areas. And so over the course of the war, the U.S. government created something called the U.S. Military Railroads Organization, which ended up having 25,000 employees and took over and ran more than 2,000 miles of Southern railroads. But the Union never entered onto a wholesale policy of impressment of resources for the war effort, though, as we'll see, the Confederacy did do that. Now, in terms of the legacy of Civil War mobilization for the rest of American history, it is true that a lot of things were significantly scaled back, or in some cases, even eliminated after the war. But nonetheless, all these sorts of things set precedents for similar actions during America's participation in the world wars of the 20th century. And the fact that Lincoln's almost always seen by mainstream opinion as the greatest president ever in American history, and that he also presided over all this unprecedented power grabbing by the U.S. government in general, and the executive in particular, this has allowed later presidents to often point back to and to cite Lincoln when they're doing some major power grab in order to legitimize whatever it is they're trying to do. This experience of mobilization during the Civil War also altered the collective psychology of the American masses regarding their relationship to the government, especially the federal government. Bruce Porter says that the war mobilization experience, quote, left a deep and enduring impression on the public in the northern states as to the potential power and reach of the federal government, with which most citizens had never had dealings beyond the post office. The war thus altered the attitudes and perceptions of Americans regarding their government in ways that were profound, pervasive, and permanent, end quote. In addition, I think you could say this War was really the birth of the American military-industrial complex, and even though it was scaled back significantly for a while after the war, it never really went back to the way it was, sort of the classic ratchet effect. It's true that war mobilization in the North created prosperity for certain specific companies, at least temporary prosperity, who got generous war contracts, but according to Jeffrey Hummel in the North, quote, the war erased at least five years of wealth accumulation, end quote. And of course, in the South, the war's effects were in every way, including economically, far, far more uh, destructive than that. Now, switching gears to talk about the mobilization in the South, the South was not only poorer and smaller than the North in absolute terms, but most of the South's wealth that they did have was in the form of land and slaves, which aren't very liquid assets, especially in wartime. And most of the large planters who 
you would think of as the wealthiest couple percent or whatever of Southern society, most of these large planters, the guys who lived in the big houses and owned the biggest batches of slaves and the biggest hunks of land, in actuality, they had very little cash, very little liquid assets. And on the contrary, many of these guys were frequently heavily in debt. The fact that the Union won the war was at least in part due to the fact that it had way more resources and that its government ultimately proved more skillful at mobilizing resources for war. But that sure as hell doesn't mean the Confederates didn't give Leviathan Building a hell of a college try. In fact, in some specific aspects of war mobilization, on paper at least, the Confederacy went way further, even if they often lacked the logistical and administrative capability to enforce things as much as they might have wanted to. Now, in terms of mobilizing manpower, if you think the Union had a hard time keeping its ranks filled, imagine the Confederacy with only a fraction of the population and oftentimes with harsher conditions in its army and so on. Of course, like the Union, they'd had little problem getting a bunch of eager volunteers at the start of hostilities, but it didn't take too many months of escalating carnage and hardships before it became obvious to anybody that this wouldn't be a quick and easy war. And then, not surprisingly, recruitment got a lot more difficult. In December of 1861, as those who had enlisted for a one-year term of service at the very start of the war started to be about to be eligible to leave the army, the Confederate government tried to keep enlistments up by offering a $50 bounty for those who re-enlisted, as well as a 60-day furlough and the ability to join new regiments and elect new officers for those regiments. Robert E. Lee thought this was a bad idea that would weaken and disrupt the Confederate Army and hurt things like unit cohesion, and instead he just urged conscription as the solution, and President Jefferson Davis agreed with him. On March 28, 1862, Davis sent a message to the Confederate Congress requesting that they enact conscription. Some members of the Confederate Congress rejected this on the principle of things like individual rights and states' rights, but the majority would quickly pass it. Senator Lewis Wigfall of Texas said in support of conscription, quote, We need a large army. How are you going to get it? No man has any individual rights which come into conflict with the welfare of the country, end quote. On April 16, 1862, military conscription was passed by both houses of the Confederate Congress by large majorities. It would be the first conscription act administered by a central government in American history. Previously, there had been compulsory state militia service in a lot of places, but there hadn't been such a thing as a true national-level conscription into a national army in America. The Confederacy beat the Union to the punch on this. The Confederate Conscription Act required all able-bodied white male citizens between the ages of 18 and 35 to serve for three years. Those who'd already served for one year as volunteers would still have to serve two more. And later on, this act would be amended to require service by all these men for the duration of the war, however long it would last. However, as in the North, there were ways that wealthier citizens of the South could get out of being drafted. And one was... The same thing as in the North, the ability to hire a substitute, again, someone who's either a non-citizen immigrant or who's outside the age limit, to serve in one's place. This practice, which seems crazy to modernize, was something that actually went way back in European and earlier American warfare. And again, 
Hiring a substitute was understandably not cheap, and it basically meant the wealthy could exempt themselves from being drafted. And as in the North, over the same issue, it led to average Southerners saying things like, rich man's war, poor man's fight. And as in the North, it led to a whole industry of substitutes who'd hire themselves to somebody, desert the army, and then hire themselves as substitutes for somebody else. And there was an additional thing in the Southern draft to allow the wealthier people to get out of being drafted, and that was a provision that said that men who owned 20 or more slaves could exempt themselves from conscription as well, which if you own 20 or more slaves, you were the wealthiest, you know, couple percent of Southerners. Another difference in the Confederate conscription rules was that there were exemptions for people with certain jobs to not be drafted. So Confederate government personnel and workers in certain industries and professions were exempted. And one of those professions that was exempted was teachers. And very quickly, the number of people going into teaching skyrocketed. Later in the war, as things became more desperate, the Confederate legislature modified the draft to make all men between 17 and 50 eligible to be drafted, and the practice of substitution was eventually repealed. Somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of Confederate soldiers ended up being draftees over the course of the war, which was a higher rate than in the North. And a Confederate soldier, whether he volunteered or not, usually ended up serving until he was either killed or maimed bad enough to not be serving anymore, or the war ended. Or he deserted, which many did, and increasingly so as the war dragged on. The Confederate government also eventually manned many of its manufacturing facilities with soldiers. And Jeffrey Hummel notes perceptively, quote, Insofar as these detailed soldiers were conscripts, the Confederacy was running its factories on coerced labor. The internal logic of military conscription had led the nation of black agricultural slavery to the ironic but appropriate adoption of white industrial slavery, end quote. Conscription was without question the most unpopular and controversial thing the Confederate government did during its entire four-year existence, and it led to many different kinds of resistance. Naturally, in terms of socioeconomic patterns, it was most controversial among the poorer Southerners, and geographically, the act was least controversial in states where they were facing the brunt of Union invasion and occupation, such as Virginia and Tennessee, and most controversial in states that were far removed from a lot of the fighting for the first half of the war, states such as Georgia and Florida, for example. And also North Carolina was notorious for often speaking out against and in some cases resisting heavy-handed Confederate government measures, such as conscription. And very often the state government of North Carolina would even get involved in this. James McPherson writes, quote, Conscription dramatized a fundamental paradox in the Confederate war effort the need for Hamiltonian means to achieve Jeffersonian ends, end quote. And as McPherson also points out, in defending his claim of constitutionality for doing this, despite the fact that the Confederate Constitution did not explicitly say that the central government could do it, Jefferson Davis made arguments that sound like they were plagiarized right out of Alexander Hamilton or perhaps John Marshall's writings on the subject, full of implied powers and even referencing the Confederate Constitution's necessary and proper clause. Davis claimed that 
controversial, heavy-handed measures that the Confederate government employed over the course of the war were justified to preserve the Confederate Constitution, which is interesting because these are very, very similar arguments to the ones deployed by Lincoln, i.e. saving the Union, to defend all of his controversial and arguably unconstitutional war measures. By the way, all of the courts in the Confederacy in which the draft's legality were challenged upheld the practice of conscription. In terms of the South's economic mobilization, I mentioned before that Jeffrey Hummel characterizes the Union's economic mobilization strategy as one of neo-mercantilism. Well, he characterizes that of the Confederacy as war socialism, and he also refers to it as full-blown state socialism. And indeed, the Confederacy's approach does bear some disturbing resemblance to the approach of Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks' usage of so-called war communism during the Russian Civil War era to keep the Bolshevik army equipped at all costs, regardless of what this did to the civilian economy. Though to be fair, the Confederate version of war socialism wasn't quite as homicidal, but it was still enormously economically destructive. And there was quite a strong streak of statism in the South, which again, I'm often put off by people who want to make the Confederates into these libertarian heroes. As early as 1862, the popular Southern magazine DeBose Review published an editorial which said, quote, Every man should feel that he has an interest in the state, and that the state, in a measure, leans upon him, and he should rouse himself to efforts as bold and heroic as if all depended upon his single right arm. It is implied in the spirit which times demand that all private interests are sacrificed to the public good. The state becomes everything and the individual nothing, end quote. And I think one can pretty easily imagine much the same words coming from a Mussolini, a Hitler, a Stalin, or a Mao. And I'm not saying that these Confederates were anywhere near that bloodthirsty as those characters, but it's clearly a shared philosophical basis to at least some Confederates. Mark Thornton and Robert Eklund, in their book Tariffs, Blockades, and Inflation, The Economics of the Civil War, write, quote, Many Confederate leaders had a state's rights and limited government ideology, but fought the war with a powerful central government. Union leaders, in large measure, advocated a big government platform, but fought the war by turning more to the market and relative fiscal prudence, end quote. The Confederacy's chief of ordnance was a man named General Josiah Gorgas, and he implemented a policy of forced industrialization that's somewhat comparable in its approach to something like Mao's Great Leap Forward, although admittedly on a much smaller scale and with a much smaller accompanying body count. The Confederate government ultimately ended up running most major factories, mines, food processing and canning facilities, and mills that provided supplies to the war effort. They ran them directly instead of just contracting with private firms. When the Confederacy did purchase stuff from a private contractor, they imposed lots of regulations and things like rigid limitations on profits. And this, combined with the hyperinflation that occurred as the war dragged on, made most southern owners of factories and mills and so on eventually decide to just hand their facilities over to the government, as it wasn't worth the trouble and expense of trying to run it themselves. To run all these factories and facilities and departments, the Confederate government bureaucracy ballooned to over 70,000 employees by the middle of the war in 1863. 
not only the central government, but the individual southern states also intervened heavily in the economy and, among other things, limited how much acreage individual farmers could devote to cotton and tobacco and also banned the distillation of liquor. State and central governments also interfered heavily in things like foreign trade and blockade running, trying to ban blockade runners from smuggling certain items in and requiring them to smuggle in others. So basically, the Confederates at least tried to a large degree to nationalize or socialize the blockade running industry, something that probably made the blockade runners less productive than they otherwise might have been if they had been left to their own devices to do what they thought was most profitable. And this is something I'll talk about more in an episode I'm eventually going to make about the blockade and its effects. In terms of its war finance, the Confederate government chose to fight its attempted war of independence primarily through conventional military means, which meant that the war would be very, very expensive for them. For most of the war, the Confederacy's Treasury Secretary was the German-born Christopher Memminger of South Carolina, who, like a lot of Confederate cabinet officials, is kind of an interesting guy when you look back to his life story. He'd been born in Germany and then been moved to Charleston as a young child by his mother, who got sick and died shortly after they arrived. And as a result, Memminger had spent a few years in an orphanage before being adopted by a successful lawyer and future governor of South Carolina. Now, apparently Memminger was a genuine genius because he entered college at age 12, graduated second in his class at age 16, and had a successful law practice before he was 25. Interestingly, in the 1830s, he'd actually opposed nullification of the so-called Tariff of Abominations by South Carolina. Like many top people in the Confederate government, he had actually not been a firebrand in favor of secession, but had gone with his state when it had seceded. Memminger, by the way, was the primary author of the document, The Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union, from which I read some excerpts, I believe, in the first episode of this series. Like his Union counterpart, Salmon Chase, Memminger was by preference and ideology a fiscal conservative and a hard money man, but also like Chase, but to an even greater extent, the war would make him adopt many fiscal and monetary policies he normally would have opposed, such as heavy taxation, heavy borrowing, and money printing. In terms of taxes, the Confederate government was not able to cover nearly as much of its war costs that way as the Union did. The Confederate government would ultimately only be able to cover less than 7% of its war costs through actual taxation. Some sources say much lower. Some sources say more like 2%. The Confederate government did institute taxes on both imports and exports, which the U.S. government, by contrast, only taxed imports. But a combination of the Union blockade and the South's self-imposed embargo on exports, which was a failed attempt to pressure the Europeans for intervention on their behalf, prevented these taxes from bringing in much revenue. In fact, over the entire course of the war, Confederate tariffs only brought in about $3.5 million to the Confederate treasury. By the way, I mentioned that I'll probably do a separate episode talking about the blockade and embargo and their effects and so on, and I may end up making that a Patreon supporters bonus episode. But anyway, 
In April of 1863, the Confederate government imposed taxes on incomes, as well as an excess profits tax, license taxes, excise taxes, and a 10% tax to be collected in kind, which was a tax that would be paid by farmers who didn't really have much in the way of cash, where they simply would have to fork over a tenth of their produce to the government. The men who enforced the taxing kind were notoriously aggressive and unpopular, and certainly they didn't help the popularity of the Confederate government in many areas of the South, especially with the poor yeoman farmers, who often weren't doing much better than subsisting. In terms of borrowing, about 20 to 25 percent of the Confederate government's budget was paid for by borrowing. The first Confederate government loan of $15 million early in the war was largely covered by Southerners, and then in 1863, the Confederate government borrowed another $8.5 million through selling cotton bonds in Europe. Also over the course of the war, farmers loaned the government loans in kind, which were also referred to as produce loans, wherein they'd fork over some of their cotton or other produce in exchange for government bonds. But the produce loans still only brought in about $34 million, and like I said, only covered a fifth to a quarter of the government's budget. So the bulk of the Confederate war financing would come in the form of money creation. During the first year of the war, the Confederate government issued $100 million of paper notes, but since the Confederacy's taxing and borrowing yielded so much less proportionately than did the unions, they had to quickly keep creating ever more dollars in order to cover their war's costs. And ultimately, at least about three quarters of the Confederacy's expenses were covered simply by money printing. Treasury Secretary Memminger himself warned in 1862 that money printing was, quote, the most dangerous of all methods of raising money. The large quantity of money in circulation today must produce depreciation and financial disaster. End quote. Thornton and Eklund do a great job summarizing the downsides of inflation in tariffs, blockades, and inflation. Quote, First, inflation distorts prices, wages, and capital values, and thus undermines the ability of producers and consumers to make rational economic decisions. Second, because inflation is such a relatively easy method of acquiring resources and goods, governments naturally have the tendency to drain too many resources from the economy and to waste too much of those resources. End quote. By the end of the war, the Confederate government had created and issued more than a billion dollars face value of paper Confederate dollars, more than twice as much as the paper greenbacks issued by the Union. And the result, of course, is predictable. Hyperinflation. The Union did experience significant wartime inflation, but the Confederacy experienced it far, far worse. In fact, over the course of the war, prices more or less doubled in the Union, while they multiplied 27 times in the Confederacy, or more, according to some estimates. Historian James McPherson correctly says that the Confederate inflation, like all comparable episodes of high inflation and hyperinflation in history, was, quote, in effect, a form of confiscatory taxation whose burden fell most heavily on the poor. It exacerbated class tensions and caused a growing alienation of the white lower classes from the Confederate cause, end quote. 
Not only did the Confederate government issue all that paper money, but the individual Confederate states also issued tens of millions of their own dollars. And all this at a time when the blockade and the war itself were producing major shortages of real goods. So basically you had way more dollars chasing a lot less stuff. It was so bad that in early 1864, the Confederate government decreed that it would no longer accept its own money in payment, although it continued printing and spending ever more of it. And one very educated-sounding Confederate Army NCO wrote of this, quote, With that infantile simplicity which characterized nearly all the doings and quite all the financial legislation of the Richmond Congress, it was decided that the very best way to enhance the value of the currency was to depreciate it still further by a declaratory statute, and then to issue a good deal more of it. End quote. The monetary expansion, combined with shortages of real goods, meant that the real wages of Southern workers declined by at least two-thirds, if not more, during the war. Everyone was hard hit, and as is always the case with high inflation, the most vulnerable parts of society were hit the worst. Food riots occurred in Richmond and in some other cities as well. It really led to crushing poverty. Now, the South was already a poorer region than the North to begin with, but these bad economic policies combined with the shortages and destruction caused by the war really impoverished Southern citizens in just an unimaginable way. About the only thing one can say good at all about the Confederate paper money policy was that at least the Confederate government didn't make it legal tender, so one could refuse to accept it and could insist on accepting only another form of payment, such as, for example, privately issued banknotes, which generally held their value better than did Confederate dollars. The Confederate government also often impressed resources for the war effort basically a confiscation mixed with a forced sale, wherein they'd take the stuff and then pay you for it with Confederate currency and always pay for it at a far, far lower price than what the real market value of whatever they were taking from you actually was. This policy of impressment of basically confiscating with half-assed compensation payments is way beyond anything the Union government ever did, and of course these sorts of practices tended only to make shortages worse. Jeffrey Hummel writes, quote, Impressments made Southerners suffer almost as much from the proximity of their own armies as from the invasions of Union armies, end quote. There's an old argument that one of the reasons the Confederacy lost the war was that its government simply wasn't statist enough. But more recently, historians such as Richard Bensel and Yankee Leviathan, Jeffrey Hummel in Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Freemen, and economists Robert Eklund and Mark Thornton in their book Tariffs, Blockades, and Inflation have challenged and, at least in my opinion, have debunked that argument. The Confederate government clearly wasn't as competent or efficient at mobilization compared to the Union government, but a lot of that difference was due to the fact that the Confederacy was flat out more socialistic in how it mobilized for the war, as compared to the more kind of mixed economy, mercantilism, one might even in modern terms say economic fascism of the Union during the war. But as some of you may know, if you've studied, for example, 
the Nazi economy of the 1930s and during World War II, and then also studied the Soviet economy during the 1930s and World War II, you find that for all its deviations from true free market principles, the fascist economy tended to still be a better performer than the full-on communist economy, simply because there was at least some amount of profit motive still existing, and there were still at least some elements of supply and demand at play, even though it was all, of course, subject to state override. Jeffrey Hummel, who, in my opinion, is a very good writer, in addition to being a top-notch economic historian, which is a rare combination, let me tell you, puts it this way, quote, One of the Civil War's enduring myths is that the South's unbending commitment to states' rights paralyzed its war effort. In actuality, Confederate war socialism was more economically centralized than the Union's neo-mercantilism, which at least relied heavily on private institutions. Rebel central planning, while adequately serving the single-minded goal of supplying conventional armies, otherwise misallocated resources and fostered inefficiencies. What paralyzed the Confederacy was not a central government with too little power, but one with too much, end quote. Had the Confederacy succeeded in getting its independence, it's doubtful, to me at least, looking at other examples of similar things happening throughout history, that it would have completely dismantled and forgotten the massive Leviathan that it had been in the process of building during the war years. There just aren't too many cases of successful revolutionaries actually tossing the ring in the volcano, so to speak. So, this is part of why I am, despite my Hostility to and skepticism of the Lincoln administration and a lot of the things the Union government was doing at the time. I'm just not a huge drinker of the Confederate Kool-Aid, because if they'd won their independence, not only would they have kept slavery in place now, for how long, who knows, it was gone by the 1880s from the Western Hemisphere— so it's unrealistic to think the South could have held on to it much longer than that, but certainly the Confederate leaders— for the most part, were not in a hurry to phase slavery out in 1860. But if they'd gotten their independence, not only would they have kept slavery around at least for a while, but they'd also have this big wartime leviathan and all these precedents of state socialism in place. And I've got to say, most of the unsavory things the Union did during the war, in terms of kind of overweening state power and authoritarianism, things which I don't at all turn a blind eye to or excuse or anything, but for all those things that the Union government did during the war years, in almost every case, you can find the Confederacy doing its version of those things for its part as well. Now, there are two important aspects of mobilization that I've not gotten into in this episode because of time, not because they're not important. And these are ideological mobilization, meaning getting into understanding people's motivations generally. And then also the kind of dark flip side of that, which is the suppression of dissent, which both sides in this war did to varying degrees and in various ways. And I'm not covering them in this episode because of time, and because I plan on getting into both of those issues more in future episodes in this series. This time I just wanted to cover the physical and financial aspects of war mobilization. But in closing, I'll just share one more thought that applies both to the stuff I've covered in this episode and to those aspects of mobilization I just mentioned that I'm going to cover in the future. Richard Ebeling wrote, quote, 
World War II was not a war between freedom and tyranny. Rather, it was a conflict between alternative systems of collectivism. End quote. And perhaps to some degree at least, that applies to the American Civil War as well. what you heard in this podcast there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist to improve and grow one is simply to spread the word about the dangerous history podcast in any way you can social media online discussion boards word of mouth whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as itunes or stitcher and you can help the show financially several different ways one of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.